Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 19. And we will get there soon. Chapter 19 is a relatively short chapter. It's only 14 verses long. We won't be there for very long tonight. We'll just sort of explain it and go through it. It is another one of the riddles, another of the parables that God lays out. He doesn't define us for us. He doesn't tell us what it means. And so I'll give you the best commentary on it that I have found so far I think it's probably the most accurate approach. And then we're going to get to chapter 20. Chapter 20 is the beginning of four chapters in which God lays out his case yet again against Israel nationally and against Jerusalem specifically. And he's going to explain again what it is that they have done. But the approach that he's going to take is to demonstrate how he has been good to them how he has been faithful to them. And there's really interesting nuggets, theological nuggets, that you can find scattered all through chapter 20. Like, for instance, all the way through the Bible, we read that God is long-suffering. That's just something that we know about the character and the nature of God, that he is long-suffering, that he is patient. Well, you're really going to see that come out in chapter 20 because God's going to say repeatedly, I should have just destroyed you at that point, but I didn't. And then the reason that he gives for why he doesn't, he repeats it several times. He says, I acted for my own name's sake. In other words, I made up my own mind and I acted because of my reputation, because of my name, because of my authority, because... I have already made promises. I'm going to keep my word. I'm not doing it because of you. I'm not doing it because you acted rightly or acted righteously. And so I decided that the best thing to do is react to your righteousness. God says over and over again, I do what I do because that's what I choose to do. And that is the very basis of everything we believe about the sovereignty of God. I was listening to... Another fellow on the internet today, people send me links and they say, go listen to this guy, what do you think? And, and I want to write back to them and say, don't give me homework, but I, but I listen to just kind of find out what people are saying. And here yet again, I, I listen to a person talk about how God reacts to the choices we make, how God in his sovereignty gave men free will. So we are autonomous creatures who can do whatever we want, and, and that's because God is sovereign. And, of course, my immediate response to it was, well, in what way is he sovereign if nobody has to do what he says? But God is going to demonstrate yet again that he is not caged in by the things that his creatures do. His creatures continue to rebel against him, but he continues to drive human history forward the way he has designed it to go, and he's doing it all according to his own will and according to his own name. He is very zealous and very jealous. 
to make sure that his reputation is intact. It goes along with the book of Job saying that God was angry, that Job's free, fr that Job's free friends, not the bound up ones, no. That Job's three friends didn't say what was right about him. And God got very upset about that. Say what is right about me. Well, here again, God is going to say the reason that I've kept you and brought you into the promised land wasn't because of your faithfulness, but because of my own reputation, my own name. I didn't want the nations of the earth to be able to say, look, God chose a people, took them into Egypt, brought them out with a mighty hand, took them into the desert and killed them all. That's how God acts. And so God keeps saying, for my name's sake, I decided to act. And I acted faithfully to myself and to my word for my own reputation's sake, not because of you. And that's how God is. God is still doing things according to his own will, his own desire, his own faithfulness, to his own word. And whenever human beings stand up on their hind legs and start boasting about, well, you know, I was good to God and that's why he was faithful to me, or any variation of that, name it, claim it. Any variation that says, well, I have a better life than you because I'm just more faithful than you. Any version of that flies in the face of what you see all the way through the Bible, which is that God's view of human beings is they're all unrighteous. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. And the goodness of God acts because God is good and God is faithful to himself and God is protecting his own name and reputation. That's the way that God always is. So that's sort of the introduction to 19 and 20. Now, chapter 19, as I just said, God's going to put forward another parable. He's going to talk first about a lioness and a couple of lions. It's going to be clear instantly that he's talking about princes or kings of Israel, the end of the Davidic line. And then he's going to talk about your mother was like a vine and you were like a vineyard. And he's going to talk about the final vine of the Davidic line, who is uh, Zedekiah, who was taken into Babylon and blinded. And that would be effectively the end of the Davidic line. So let's read a little bit, and I'll give you my best shot at what I believe chapter 19 is saying. As for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. So these are the rulers, the kings of Israel, take up a lamentation. The word there, the Hebrew word, is equally translated a dirge. It's like a funeral dirge. It's a sad thing, a lamentation that's going to be said over the princes of Israel. Say this, what was your mother? A lioness among lions. She lay down among young lions and she reared up her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion, and he learned to tear his prey, and he devoured men. Then nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit, and they took him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw, as she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion, and he walked about among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to tear his prey. He devoured men, and he destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste to their cities. 
and the land and its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. Then nations set against him on every side from their provinces, and they spread their net over him, and he was captured in their pit. And they took him in a cage with hooks, and they brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Let's take a look at the first nine verses and interpret just a little bit. First off, we know from the way that Ezekiel dates things and the time frames that he's speaking of, we're talking right around 592 B.C. as he's receiving these particular visions. Jerusalem's fall is inevitable as far as Ezekiel is concerned, but he's prophesying this about five years before the actual fall of Jerusalem. So since we've concluded that the young lions are kings of Israel, some scholars feel that the lioness was Hamudiel. Is that how you would say her name? She was one of the wives of Josiah. She was the mother of Jehoahaz and Zedekiah. This is where it helps that we looked at First and Second Kings and went through all of that before we got to any of the prophets or Ezekiel and that we've been plugging the prophets into the timeline of First and Second Kings because everything I'm going to tell you now, we get directly from Second Kings. The mother of Jehoahaz and Zedekiah, you can read about her in 2 Kings 23 and 24. But I also don't think it's likely that Ezekiel is talking about her particularly as the mother lion because first the king in Ezekiel 19:5 to 9 seems to be Jehoiakim. And his mother was actually Nehushta, who was a different wife of Josiah. So I don't think Ezekiel and God are trying to draw out one particular woman. I see the lioness as being either the lineage of the Davidic kings or Israel itself. So in verses 3 and 4, the lioness, if it's Israel, brought up one of her cubs. He became a strong lion or a king. And this lion was, I believe, Jehoiahaz who came to the throne after Josiah's untimely death. We've read about that. And after a reign of only three months, he was deposed by Pharaoh Necho II, and he was taken into Egypt. So that exactly fits the story here. And interestingly, we read that he was led to Egypt with hooks, which is, again, exactly what the story says here was going to happen to him. Probably literal hooks that were in his nose and attached to a rope or a leash, and he was dragged to the land of Egypt. And in Egypt, Jehoiahaz died in captivity. You can read about that in 2 Kings 23, verses 31 to 34. So I think that fits the storyline of she raised up a cub, nations heard about him, he was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. That seems to be satisfied in Jehoiahaz. Jehoiakim is the next king as you look at the lineage after Josiah. Jehoiakim, though, died in Jerusalem, so he can't really be the next king in this lineage since we know that the next king is taken into Babylon. But if you go one more generation down, Jehoiakim, who is another of the cubs of Israel, 
became a strong lion, and he reigned only for three months before he was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar and taken into Babylon. And his brief reign that you can read about in 2 Kings again was a time of terror and destruction. So that seems to fit this story. With lion-like ferocity, Jehoiakim wrought havoc, breaking down their strongholds and their towns. And the terror was removed when he was dethroned and deported by Nebuchadnezzar with hooks. They put him into a cage. The word cage there might mean cage or it might mean a neck yoke. And then he was dragged to Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar imprisoned Jehoiakim in Babylon because of the revolt of his father that Jehoiakim had begun. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24, 8 to 17. So Jehoiakim remained in prison for 37 years till he was released when evil Merodach succeeded his father Nebuchadnezzar on the throne of Babylon. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25. And that whole time Jehoiakim remained in Babylon and he never returned to the land of Israel. So those are the two kings that I believe are being described as young lions in the early part of this chapter. They're the two kings at the very end of the lineage just prior to Zedekiah. One was taken to Egypt with hooks. One was taken into Babylon in a cage or, or under a yoke. And that takes us to verse 10. Starting at verse 10, it's a little more obvious who he's talking about. He's clearly talking about Zedekiah. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant water. And it had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers. And its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height with its mass of its branches. So now the vineyard, your mother is a vineyard. The vineyard produces many branches. They rule with scepters, so they've all become kings. So that's why I don't think the vine, the mother, can be any one woman. It seems to be more Israel and the lineage of David because several kings have come out of this vine so that it was seen in its height with the mass of its branches, but it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground. That was the end of the Davidic rule. And the east wind dried up its fruit. You could read right past that without really paying attention, but that's really important to any, anybody who lives in Jerusalem, anybody who lives in Israel. The threat of an east wind was a very serious threat because when the wind came from the west across Jerusalem, well, then it brought rain with it because it came across the Mediterranean and came in from the sea and brought fair weather. But an east wind is coming straight from the desert and can destroy crops and oftentimes would make for a haven of locusts and everything else. East wind throughout the Bible is used as a phrase that means troubles coming your way, but also quite literally wind from the east would bring famine and havoc on Israel. So the vine was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground and an east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off. So the strong branch would be one of its kings was torn off so that it withered and the fire consumed it. And now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and a thirsty land. And fire has gone out from its branch 
It has consumed its shoots and fruit so that there is not in it a strong branch. So there's no more kings, no more strong branches, no more posterity for that final king, and there is not a scepter to rule. So there were no more kings after Zedekiah. Once Zedekiah was taken into Babylon, which is why it says that he was taken into the wilderness and into a dry and a thirsty land. This is a lamentation. This is a dirge and has become a lamentation. So there's my best interpretation of chapter 19. That's my best understanding of what it's getting at. God is once more saying that this is the end of the lineage of David ruling from Jerusalem. The line of Davidic kings has ended with Zedekiah and there are no more scepters to rule after that. And that takes us to chapter 20. Okay, so chapter 20, all of that was introduction. Chapter 20 is really where I wanted to get to and where I wanted to bear down because this again is God speaking through Ezekiel to the elders of Israel and God defending himself and explaining Israel's guilt to them yet again. Apparently, the elders didn't understand why is this happening to us? Why has God taken us into Babylon and Why are the last people who are remaining in Jerusalem and think that they're safe, why are they even going to fall by famine and by the sword and by pestilence? Why is God bringing all this trouble? And God's going to say, it's because I've waited a long time to bring this trouble on you. But I should have wiped you out years ago. But for my own namesake, I didn't do it. And so by the time he gets done making his case over the next four chapters, we won't read all four tonight, but by the time he gets done with all four, it's very, very clear how he sees these people who feel that they're just not that bad. And I think that's a problem that we have to this very day. Ask most people, are you a sinner? And what will most people reply? I'm not that bad. Sure. And they'll find some example. Yeah, Hitler's the popular one. But they'll find somebody and say, well, pardon me? Or Osama. Or, or Osama or Pol Pot or they'll find somebody. I'm not Castro. I'm not Madonna. I'm not Tom. They're going to find somebody Ouch. that, ooh, I know. Madonna? Just bang, zoom, you know. Yeah, they're going to find somebody that they can say, well, I'm not as bad as that because we all have that natural human propensity to want to justify ourselves and believe that we're just not that bad. And from God's perspective, these people who felt they weren't all that bad are so bad that they have no concept how bad they are. And that is part of the whole uh, reformed idea of total depravity. Not that man is as bad as he could be, but that every part of him is depraved and that when God looks on you, he doesn't see a formerly depraved person who now is doing better. He sees depraved people who he's being gracious to, who he's being merciful to so that he gets all the glory. If there's any part of his salvific work that is dependent on you, then you can take some glory for it. And that's certainly what Paul argues. But there is nothing within the human that he can glory in. It all has to be the result of God being good to people. So God is going to rehearse his dealings with Israel here, and he's going to say, 
Remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? Remember when you did that? I should have wiped you out then, but I didn't. And he's going to profess his faithfulness and long-suffering. And then by the end of chapter 20, remarkably, God is going to say the same thing that he says through every prophet without fail. Every single prophet in the Old Testament, you've heard me use the phrase over and over, they all speak with one voice. By the end of chapter 20, God's going to promise to restore the land of Israel again. After telling them how bad they are and how he should have destroyed them, he's going to get to the end of the chapter and say, but for my own name's sake, because I'm faithful, I keep my word, because I'm me, And not because you're you, but because I'm me, I'm going to do everything I promised I was going to do. And you don't deserve it. And again, I think that fits very well with our theology. God is going to do everything God promised he's going to do. He's going to elect people. He's going to save people. He's going to redeem people. He's going to justify people. He's going to glorify people, not because of the people, but because of who he is. So that takes us to chapter 20, verse 1. Now, It came about in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month. This is very helpful. Ezekiel keeps giving us names and dates so that we can identify when it was and where it was that he had these visions. Certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat before me. Now, do you remember earlier, just a couple chapters ago, that God said, When these people who chase after their foreign gods and have become friends with the nations of the earth, when they come to inquire of me, I don't feel any obligation to answer them. They can go talk to their gods, but I'm not going to answer them. So here come the elders of Israel, the very ones that he's punishing. And because they're in the midst of all this turmoil and trouble and deportation, they come to Ezekiel and say, talk to God for us. And God's answer is... The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Notice that God is not desperate for friends. Notice that God completely defends his own singularity and his own righteousness and his own holiness. And when human beings say, well, you know, if you do this and that for me, they bargain with God. If you'll do that, then I'll make you my God. God doesn't seem to be under any particular need to have people approve of him. He's perfectly content to say, you don't get to come talk to me. I'm God. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm separate. You're not like me. I'm not like you. So are you going to come and inquire of me as I live, declares the Lord God? I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers. So now God is speaking to Ezekiel and tells Ezekiel, long as you've got these elders of Israel in front of you, let's tell them how guilty they are. Let's just lay it out. Will you judge them, son of man? Ezekiel had to be thinking, this is not going to make me popular. (laughs) Say to them, verse 5, thus says the Lord God, on the day 
when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. Notice that God did not say they discovered me. They figured me out. They were busy chasing their Egyptian gods. They were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. They didn't know God. They came to know God because God introduced himself to them. Has anybody here had any dealings with Alcoholics Anonymous, AA? Yeah. Well, one of the tenets of AA is the idea that you find God. I had a friend out in California who was a raging drunk who got sober through AA, and he called me one day because one of his 12 steps was to make reparations. And so he called me, and he apologized. And he was telling me how he's turned his life around. And he said to me, and I found God. I said, really? You found God? I'll tell you what, call me back when you figure out that God wasn't lost. (laughs) You were. And that if you know God, God found you. Call me back. It took a few years. He called me back one day and said, I think I know what you're talking about. (laughs) I said, yeah, because you stumbled and fell again, didn't you? And that same God was gracious to you again. You didn't find God. You didn't do anything. You didn't make God Lord and Savior. You didn't make anybody within the Godhead anything. They are what they are. They are complete within themselves. And if you know anything about them, it's because they were gracious in introducing themselves to you. And so here's God declaring that very thing. On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. And I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Notice they're in Egypt still, and God says, I was ready to punish them. Already, in fact, in a couple chapters, as God is continuing to make his case against Israel, he's going to call them two erring sisters, the northern tribes, the southern tribes. He's going to give them names, Ahola and Aholabah. And he's going to say that they were two erring sisters in Egypt. So God sees them as guilty all the way back to Egypt. Because they belong to him, they're chasing their Egyptian idols. He has said, I'm your God. Put away those detestable things. They didn't do it. So I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But, that's a very important but right there. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. 
in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, God is so concerned with his own reputation, his own name. He's so concerned that people say what is right and just about him that he did not wipe out Israel while they were still in Egypt so that the Egyptians could not say, well, their God gathered them up and destroyed them. Because God wants to be represented correctly as a just and a holy God, but also a gracious God, also a God who delivers and a God who redeems sinners. So even though they were sinners in the land of Egypt, they were redeemed out of the land of Egypt by the mighty hand of God because God was being faithful to himself for his own namesake, not because of them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 10, so I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. In other words, the assumption apparently from God here is, since I did that, since I didn't wipe them out, since I redeemed them, you would think now they'd change. Now they would do better. Now they would put away the detestable things. Now that they've seen how I redeemed them out of Egypt and that I am their God, now they should worship me rightly. But no. I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness and I gave them my statutes. And I informed them of my ordinances, that's the giving of the law at Sinai through Moses, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And also I gave them my Sabbaths. Notice this, by the way, here's a little extra free theological nugget, and it's going to come up a couple times in this chapter. Notice how God defines the Sabbath, because there are plenty of arguments and debates within the Christian world to this very day about whether we Gentiles are supposed to be keeping Sabbath. And of course, if you look at what the Bible says about the Sabbath, it is a sign. It is a token. It is not a rule by which people are being made more righteous. It's not a rule that people are being sanctified by. It is a token between God and a particular people. Who? Israel! And since it is a token of a covenant that God made with Israel, there's no requirement on us to keep the Sabbath, which is why we are not Sabbatarians. Here, God will say it himself. And also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So he set them apart. He made them separate. That's what the word sanctifying means here, that he separated them from the other nations of the world so that they would know that they belong to Yahweh. And as a sign of that covenant between him and them, he gave them the Sabbaths so that when they kept those Sabbaths, it made them distinct from all the other nations on the earth. That says nothing about Sabbath keeping by Gentiles because God makes it clear the Sabbath is meant to be a sign between me and Israel. He says it, and he's going to say it again. And also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. Remember that whole golden calf thing? He's up there giving them his ordinances. He's giving them the law. 
and they're down at the bottom making a golden calf and dancing around it and worshiping it. And when Moses comes down with the commandments written in stone by the very finger of God, he sees what's going on. He asks Aaron what it's about. And Aaron says, I don't know. Uh, we threw our gold in the fire and lo, out came this calf. It's like a miracle. Who knew? So Aaron's just lying his face off apparently because that calf did not just spring out of the fire magically. But he's justifying himself. He's making excuses. I don't know what happened. God sees it as they rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. That was God's intention. Do you remember his conversation with Moses? He was like, get out of the way. I'm going down there and wiping them all out. And Moses interceded for the people of Israel, said, don't let that be your reputation, that you brought them out into the wilderness and destroyed them. Don't let that be the way you're spoken of. God's intention was to annihilate them, and then God acquiesced to, well, okay, everybody over 20 is going to die here in the wilderness over the next 40 years, and everybody under 20 is going to go into the promised land. That's going to be my compromise plan but plan A was, I annihilate everybody, and they deserve it. So here's God saying to the elders of Israel, you deserve to have been wiped out ever since Egypt, while you're still in Egypt, while I'm giving you my law, while I'm bringing you through the wilderness, while I'm giving you bread from heaven, and your clothes don't wear out, and your shoes never wear out, and I'm taking care of you. You continued to rebel against me. I should have annihilated all of you. Verse 14, but... I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. And also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Yet my eyes spared them rather than destroying them. I did not cause their utter annihilation in the wilderness. And I said to their children in the wilderness, that's everybody under 20, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers or keep their ordinances or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and observe them and sanctify my Sabbaths. And they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes nor were they careful to observe my ordinances by which, if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths. So I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withdrew my hand, and I acted for the sake of my name, 
that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Then also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands because they had not observed my ordinances but had rejected my statutes and had profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. And I also gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. Listen to what God just said in his absolute sovereignty because they wanted to rebel. He allowed them then to chase the gods that would destroy their children. He said very clearly to them, when I take you into the land, don't follow the gods of the people who already live in the land and don't follow the gods of the surrounding nations and do not go through the fire of Molech. Don't turn your children over to Molech. And God got so tired of them that he wanted to destroy them. And then rather than destroy them, he turned them over to their own desires so that they would end up killing their own children to gods that were not gods. Whoa, man, that's a sovereign God. I gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. I let them have their own way. And I allowed that they would turn their children over to Molech. I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel. By now, do you think the elders of Israel sitting there hearing this all rehearsed are starting to get a feel for it? Time and time again, God said, I should just destroy you. I should get rid of you. I should annihilate you. But he said, for my own namesake, I won't do it. I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said I was going to take you into the land. I said I'm going to make a kingdom of you. Okay, for that reason, I'm not going to completely annihilate it, but you deserve it. But I'm not going to do it to you. But finally, God just turns them over to their own wickedness and their own uncleanness. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel, say to them, thus says the Lord God, yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me and acted treacherously against me. When I had brought them into the land, which I swore to give them, then they saw every high hill and every leafy tree, and they offered there their sacrifice, and there they presented the provocation of their offerings. Do you hear that? God is saying they offered to idols and in so doing they provoked me. They made me angry. They're begging for my anger. They're teasing me. They're tormenting me by the fact that they're worshiping other idols. Even after I didn't destroy them. Even after I redeemed them out of Egypt. Even after I let them live. Even after I cared for them and took them into the land of milk and honey. They went up on every high mountain and every grove and every leafy tree. And they made gods for themselves. And every time that they brought sacrifices and offerings to their idols. They provoked me to be angry. There also they made their soothing aroma. 
and there they poured out their libations. Then I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this very day, which means high place. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? And when you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, are you defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day? And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. So that whole thing was about God saying, I don't have to answer you. I won't be inquired of you. Who do you think you are and who do you think I am? And why do you think I'm so desperately in need of you that I'm going to put up with all the ways that you've provoked me? So God is building his case that he doesn't have to be good to Israel. What he has to do is pour out his, his justice his righteousness, his vengeance against Israel, because they deserve it. Verse 32, and what comes into your mind will not come about when you say, we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the earth, serving wood and stone. So the fact that you've set up your idols, you want to go serve your wood and stone, I'm your God, you're my people, I'm not going to let you be like that. Oh, you're acting like that now, but I'm the boss here. I'm the sovereign God. I'm not going to let you continue to be like that. How? Well, starting at verse 33, God now declares the restoration of Israel. And the restoration of Israel, he's going to take out everybody who worships a foreign god or worships stone or wood or any of that, he's going to cleanse them. He's going to purify them. But notice that he is going to reestablish them. Why? Because he said so. And that's his reputation. And for his own namesake, he's going to do it so that nobody can ever look at his word and say, well, here, God said he was going to reestablish Israel. He said it over and over, but he didn't do it. God is saying, I'm going to do it. For my own namesake, because I said I would. But not so that any of you can ever think you deserve it. He's made it clear that nobody deserves it. And it's made clear in Isaiah and restated in Romans that there's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's nobody that stirred themselves up to seek after God. In other words, among all of human creation, there's no one who deserves it. But for God's own sake, for God's own name, for God's own reputation, he's going to be good to people out of his mercy because he promised his son a people. And so he's going to keep his word to people who don't deserve it. That's what I want to keep stressing. This idea of total depravity, people don't like it. They argue against it. You can find lots and lots of debates online, people arguing about what total depravity really means and are we totally depraved and the idea is maybe we're just less good than we should be, but that we're not not totally depraved, we're not completely bad. I think after you read this, you get the idea that God is saying, yeah, you are. You're really that bad. In fact, I've argued for many, many years that we are actually so bad that we have no idea how bad we are. 
That's how totally depraved we are. We are so totally depraved that our depravity won't allow us to see how depraved we are. But God sees it. And there's none that doeth good. No, not one. Even our best righteousness is filthy rags. So what do you got before God? You got nothing. Yes, Tom? When you argue against total depravity, you argue against mercy. Yeah. Because you're basically saying, I really don't need mercy, or at least I don't need that much mercy because I'm not that bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had any sense of at all, you know, yeah, I'll take all the mercy I can get. Yeah, yeah. I really am that bad, and I need tons of mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree, but if you start with a theology that is up, up, up with people. If you start with the theology of human beings are capable, human beings aren't all that bad, human beings can pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps and be good enough to obligate God, and that theology runs rampant in the modern church world. That's the very basis of all Roman Catholicism. Just do better, pull yourself up, get good enough that God accepts you. And if you start with that human-centric theology, you have to end up at, well, then I don't need that much mercy. I'm actually pretty good. I just need some mercy, some grace from God. But if you understand how totally depraved you are, your point, I'm agreeing with you. If you understand how totally depraved you are, then you understand that the only hope you have is mercy. Grace from God, that's your only hope. And it's funny that that concept takes on a lot of different forms. There is a neo-Gnostic, neo-Calvinistic, whatever these names all mean, version of Calvinism out there online these days that starts with the premise that you can't be saved unless you know the doctrines of grace and unless you adhere to the five points. If you're what they would call either Arminian or even a compromising Calvinist, that you're of the devil. You can't even be saved, that you know all kinds of condemnation is thrown at you. And what they've effectively done is they've removed grace, even though it's supposedly Calvinistic sovereign grace people who are saying this stuff. They've removed grace from the equation and replaced it with proper theology. And so that the only way you can be saved is by proper theology. They've made that a new work. Now the new work is get your theology right, which again replaces the concept of it's grace, grace, completely grace, all grace. Anyway, I went off on a tangent, but that's your fault. People would rather feel better about themselves than worship God for his mercy. Yeah. These very same people who would argue and say, well, the Arminians, it's all humanistic, and so they're not saved, are then turning around and saying, but all we have the right theology, and so we're being saved or can be saved by the basis of our right theology. Well, that's back to a humanistic, human-based prerequisite for salvation. Pride. Pride. And as soon as you make a prerequisite for salvation, you've reduced grace. Okay, so we're starting again in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. That's his declaration. That's a definitive statement. I'm going to be king over you. You're going to react to my theocracy I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out 
and I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you. I will just state this and let it hang out there. This sounds to me like the tribulation. This sounds like the time that Jesus predicted, a time of trouble coming on particularly Israel, a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, and that it's even going to take place in the Megiddo Plain, in the wilderness. This is what's being described. God says, I'm going to bring you in from all the nations where you've been scattered, and then I'm going to deliver you with a mighty hand and with wrath poured out. So God is once again going to enter into judgment with Israel, having entered into that judgment I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant. That idea of making you pass under the staff or under the rod is the way that shepherds used to count their sheep. When shepherds would bring sheep in from the flock to take them into the sheepfold, they would hold out their rod as the sheep passed under it. They would count their sheep, and of course, the sheep would know the shepherd's voice, And they could recognize if there were any sheep that didn't belong to their flock, that belonged to somebody else's flock. And so when they would bring them into safety, bring them into the sheepfold, they would make them pass under the rod. God uses that language to say, I'm going to make you, Israel, pass under the rod so that I bring you into my sheepfold. And the sheepfold is, I'm going to bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, of course, that covenant cannot be the Mosaic covenant which covenant has already been broken. It was a conditional covenant. That covenant is already severed between God and those people. So it has to be a reference to a new covenant that's coming. And at this very time, Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Ezekiel's, is talking about a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. You can read all about the new covenant that's brought up in Hebrews 8, the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, so that even in New Testament times after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the new covenant is still a promise that still belongs to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God is still going to bring them back in, reestablish them according to the covenant that he has made with them. I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. He's going to purify them. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, where they're staying, but they will not enter the land of Israel. I'm going to bring them out into the wilderness, and I'm going to judge them there. And thus you will know that I am the Lord. But as for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me. So God is basically saying, I know how rebellious you are. Go do your rebellious thing. But the day is coming when you're going to listen to me. The day is coming when I'm going to return you to myself. Because he says, later you shall surely listen to me and my holy name. You will not profane any longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, On the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. Where? In the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan. There I shall accept them, 
and there I shall seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. Does it sound like God intends to reestablish Israel? That's what he says. He keeps saying it. How many times now have we seen it at the mouth of the prophets of Israel that God intends to restore them? And where is he going to restore them? On the high mountain of Israel. That's Jerusalem. He's going to bring them back to the land, the land of Canaan. And there he's going to finally accept them, the whole house of Israel, all of them. Which is why Paul can say at the end of Romans 11, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And he defines them as, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the promises, they are beloved for the Father's sake. As touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. God has made promises to the fathers, and therefore God is going to be faithful to his promises, faithful to his name, even as they are enemies of the gospel. He is nevertheless going to restore them, even though they are enemies of the law that he gave them. He's going to restore them, even though they are enemies of God and worship their foreign idols and break his Sabbaths. He's going to restore them. That story of redemption and restoration runs all the way through the Bible. From the very beginning to the very end, God's faithfulness to his chosen people. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I shall accept them. And there I shall seek your contributions and your choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I shall accept you. One of the sacrifices that they had to bring to God on a regular basis was uh, the, the soothing aroma offering, which was basically that they had to sacrifice the best of what they had as nothing more than a sweet savor, a sweet savor aroma that would rise to the nostrils of God. It was destroying the best of what you had, just trusting that God gave it to you and God could give you more of it, and you would take the best of what you had and just give it over to God to send a sweet savor into his nostrils just to satisfy him just to to make God pleased with you and what does he say here when he accepts Israel it's going to be like that sweet savor offering it's going to be like a soothing aroma a sweet smell to God as he accepts Israel after all his years of redeeming and bringing them through and, and leaving them to themselves and them following their idols and everything else, when they finally come back to him, realize who he is. He puts his spirit in them. He takes out their heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh. It's going to be like a soothing aroma. And I shall accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and I gather you out of the lands where you are scattered. And I shall prove myself holy among you in the sight of all the nations. Why didn't he destroy Israel previously? Because of his own namesake in the sight of all the nations. And he's going to prove himself holy among Israel in the sight of the nations. And that's why all the Gentile nations, you can read about it in, in Zechariah, you can read about it in the New Testament and Revelation, that all the nations are going to have to worship toward and to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is again going to be where the greater son of David rules and all the Gentile nations are going to flow to Israel. The blessings on the earth are going to be Israel's blessings. The Gentile nations get those blessings because Israel got them. We get them almost as a, 
trickle-down effect of the fact that God is giving them to Israel. And so he says, I'm going to be shown, I'm going to prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. And you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. There it is. As touching the gospel, they're enemies. But as touching the election, they're beloved for the Father's sakes. Paul isn't saying anything new there at the end of Romans 11. He's saying the same thing that God said here. God is saying, I'm going to bring you to the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. And because God swore that, he's going to bring Israel into the land that he swore to the forefathers. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. What does that mean? Instead of being arrogant, instead of being prideful, instead of doing things their own way, as Tom just pointed out, it's all man-serving, it's all pride-based. Instead, they're going to come to realize who God is, and that's going to bring them to an end of their own pridefulness so that they are repenting in the sight of God. That's the way God works. You didn't know how sinful you were. You didn't know how depraved you were until God introduced himself to you. Then you recognize the holiness of God and your own weakness and depravity, and you repent before God. That's the beginning of salvation and our relationship with God. There you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil that you have done. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you, here it comes again, for my name's sake. Why is he doing all this with Israel? He's doing this for his name's sake, for his own reputation, for the fact that he made promises to the forefathers. Look, if he could do all this for Israel, here we'll quickly apply this into a 21st century Gentile context here. If he would do all of this for Israel, though they deserve to be destroyed, though they deserve to be annihilated, though time and time again they have rebelled against God generation after generation, despite his kindness and his goodness to them, if he would nevertheless defend his own reputation and his own namesake because of promises he made to the forefathers, how much more will he perform everything he has ever promised you because it was promises that he made to his son? He has to love his son more than he loves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if he made promises to his son that his son was going to have a people who were going to worship and glorify him through all the ages, and every knee is going to bow and every tongue going to confess that his name is above all names, if those promises exist for the son, then God is certainly going to do it. There's the very source of our confidence. There's the very source of our of our sense that we're going to be okay when we leave this planet. It's not in us. You can gaze at your navel for the rest of your life and you're not going to find anything good. You'll find lint maybe, but you're not going to find anything that's, that's valuable. You have to turn away from yourself and toward God and toward his son in order to recognize why God does things. God does things based on he's God. And he has made promises and the promises that he made are his bond. Which means that no matter how bad you've been, or how sinful you've been, or how many times you've rebelled, 
he is still going to save and redeem and bring you into his presence because he promised, not you, his son. That's good news. That's really good news. <laughs> that's gospelly news. Because that's how God works. And I'm glad for it. I'm glad that God acts like that because of his namesake. Because if he acted according to how we are or what we act like or how faithful we are, then we're dead men. We got nothing. And the Bible says it over and over again that we've got nothing to commend ourselves. So God doesn't base it on that. He bases it on himself, on his word. And that's really good news. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my namesake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Taman and speak against the south and prophesy against the forest land of the Negev. That's the lower part of Israel there. And say to the forest of the Negev, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to kindle a fire in you. And it shall consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. And all flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, he doesn't mean it. Isn't that common? (laughs) They are saying of me, he's speaking in parables. Ezekiel's just making stuff up. God can't really be like that. But God himself, speaking for himself, first person says, that's exactly what I'm like. And it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter if we like it or not. It just doesn't matter. God is not concerned. If God can say, I don't have to be inquired of you. I don't have to answer you. You're not going to put me on trial. If God can be like that, then he doesn't care whether we like the way he represents himself or not. He is how he is, and we need to learn how he is, worship him for who he is, and react to who he is. And he represents himself time and time again as an utterly sovereign God who does things according to his own will, his own desire, his own good pleasure, and for his own name's sake. That's the God we worship. Make sense? Yes. yes. Questions? If anybody had a question, I was going to worry about you. Because I think that's pretty clear. And if any of you went, that's a parable, right? <laughs> that's, is that what you're doing? That's, uh, right? No, that's God representing himself. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.